Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. Why did Shenzhen, a backwater fishing village, spawn the likes of world beaters ZTE, Huawei, and Lenovo? Why Suzhou, which early on scored massive investments from top dragonhead foreign firms like Samsung and Philips, failed to spawn domestic innovation? What role did FDI and local bureaucrats in charge of economic development play? And what lessons does this story hold for today's Chinese industrial policy as well as development and innovation economics more broadly? For answers, we turn to Ling Chen, professor of political economy at Johns Hopkins SAIS and author of the recent Manipulating Globalization, the Influence of Bureaucrats on Business in China. Ling Chen, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Hi, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. And it's my pleasure to be here. So how did you first get into researching local government development policy? Well, it's, it's a bit, bit of a long story, but essentially um, I became very interested in political economy in general while I was uh, um, back in Beida. I was a Beida undergrad uh, when I took a couple courses with people who returned, uh, who was educated in the United States and then returned to China to Beida to teach. And then later when I myself went to the United States to pursue my PhD, I became really fascinated with the uh, uh, interaction of political economy factors like government business relations. And th- at that time, China was not that a big thing compared to the East Asian developmental state like Japan, South Korea, uh, uh, the Taiwan economy. So um, that's why um, I thought, you know, it would be fascinating to examine um, China and look at the uh, some of the um, China, China's political economy or development policies. Would you mind comparing the teaching style and content focus at Beida versus the Western institutions you studied at? Well, uh, well, Beida was actually a long time ago, but um, one of the contrasting thing, um, I'm, I'm more talking about Beida education just in traditional way, while I was at Beida was more uh, focused on um, uh, telling or guiding students on a lot of the topics that how the world should be uh, or what is the way that you should interpret the world. So interpretation and understanding is the main thing. And it's more of a guided way of letting you know what you should think of the world. Whereas um, in Western institutions, really just they want you to think for yourself and come up with your own model or your, your own theory and explanation about the, the puzzles. So causal explanations are emphasized much more in the Western, some of the Western institutions, yeah. Um, but it's a, a tied and social with um, the general institutional setting, but political economy setting of the two different worlds of the of in China and Western institutions. And the education, the goal of education uh, is different, right? And um, in in China, education is to make you become more a more talented and qualified person uh, that. Um, you know, give you a diploma or give you um, a 
something that you can hold on to in order to make a more advanced career. But in Western institution education or more uh, focus on your you know innovation capacity or how to train your brain to think. So um, the training to think part was not emphasized as much in um, back in China compared to the uh, Western institutions. However, that said, um, by the time I left Beta, at least at that time, it really started to change because they started to import and have uh, scholars that are educated in, say, Columbia or Cornell or Harvard, you know, sea turtles um, coming back to Beta to teach. So they bring in the model of um, sort of more like from the um, uh, U.S. institutions to there. So what sort of reception did you get with these local bureaucrats? Yeah, I was extremely lucky um, back then. I did my interviews across the years, of, mostly across the year of 2009, 2010, 2011. And so that was right before the current uh, regime started. And um, bureaucrats were, uh, in general, quite friendly um, because I, I, were, I had I had some pre-existing networks. Um, they welcomed me. They, um, they, I, I stay in nice hotels, and they bring me to various banquets. And where usually, typically during banquets, they're very, they're more honest about uh, what things, how things are uh, going, what are the major difficulties for this locality's development. So they chat quite openly, and even. I would say that even in some of the formal government meetings where um, there are bureaucrats are sitting around, like in a round table in their own seminar room inside the government, uh, which, of course, I'm not allowed to take pictures. So, of course, but at that time, I didn't have iPhone, so I didn't take picture anyway, because iPhone make taking picture much easier. Because it's not possible you take a, you take like a camera out and just say, I'm going to take a picture of you, right? That's that's awkward. But, um, but anyway, so even in office buildings and seminar rooms, uh, officials, they, when they sat around, uh, they started to chat. They're also quite frank and honest about their views. Um, uh, um, for example, there's officials um, sometimes from the science and technology department would definitely not like those officials that are attracting foreign direct investment and no, thinking those other people are not really understanding what is the real path for development. So they're going to speak. And so they actually speak very openly, not just in front of me, but in front of other bureaucrats um, that are from other department as well. Um, but um, that's just back then the story. Okay, so let's go now to these two phases that you that you talk about. So first, um, what was going on with FDI attraction in the '90s to early 2000s? Can you talk a little bit about the d- initial dynamics there? Um, so the '90s to early 2000 was really the golden period for China's attract- attraction of foreign direct investment, and that's where also large quantity of systematic FDI started happening in China. So uh, for people who are doing like China Economy 101, typically we associate the year 1978 to as China's uh, economic reform and opening. But it really was in the 1990s that um, systematically uh, FDI came into um, China. And that's when, whenever you look at the graph of FDI inflow in China, it almost seems like before 1990, it just zero. You couldn't see where the nine is. Whereas in, after 1990, the 
the graph started to suddenly uh, rise up very high, and that's why. Um, and so there are various kinds of uh, uh, foreign direct investment porting to China, but a lot of them are actually uh, a result of uh, local bureaucrats actually attracting attracting foreign direct investment and uh, bringing in the investors to set up plans. Uh, so the uh, incentives that various cities would um, give to these foreign co- foreign companies were pretty enormous. You have a quote um, from a manager of a Japanese electronics branch in Suzhou who regarded these beneficial policies as simply hard to believe because they were not seen in any other developing countries. So what were the incentives on a, a provincial basis for, for different localities to give up uh, such sweetheart deals to these large international technology players? Yeah, that that was um, when I was talking about um, and Suzhou, and of course in a lot of similar locality as well, where um, you um, provide them with um, tax reduction or tax break. That was, um, uh, you know, um, very generous. Either um, it, it's typically is the first three years is completely tax exemption, uh, and then the next. Two to five years, or um, they're only submitting like half of their corporate income tax, right? And then it's also um, added on top. On top of that, it's because the entire package is discount in the use of land to build the fact uh, the factory. In fact, a lot of times the local government actually arrange to build the factory for them because they have to dislocate all the uh, the peasants that are originally associated associated with those land. And uh, there are other like utility discount. And so it's a lot of a lot of good deals that are um, that are um, offered and. We're, Back then, it was because also that there were a lot of local competition. So, um, it, indeed, you heard a story. For example, Compel was originally Compel was the second largest uh, global uh, manufacturer for for um, like iPads, um, things and or computers, and or laptop computers. And then the origin was going to locate to Shanghai, but then um, the Kunshan government under Suzhou actually had a um, much better deal. Um, so, so. After Shanghai already allocated land to start build the factory for them, they suddenly decide that Compel said I, uh, um, that Suzhou has a better deal, so they went there. Um, so that's yeah. that's basically the story when they're tr- trying to uh, attract large multi- uh, multinational corporations. And can you contrast this with what's going on in uh, in Shenzhen at the time? It seems like they had a bit of a different philosophy uh, as opposed to giving these uh, enormous uh, deals to big foreign players. Well, um, so at Shenzhen and the broad, also the broader um, like Pearl River Delta, it's 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 also um, the governments were also offering good deals. But don't get me wrong, that they are also offering a lot of good deals. However, um, they're they're less picky. That is that they're they less focus on the they have a less focus on the f- kind of control almost like I have to be a control freak that kind of uh, mentality and they have to they actually just say you know we can just get whatever we can get and at that time um, at um, the Pearl River Delta there are a lot of different types of firms uh, there probably are um, bigger firms but a huge number of them are smaller firms which I call um, Guerrilla investors um, that there are sometimes a lot of times from um, the China circle, for example, Hong Kong or uh, Taiwan or Singapore or Macau, and they actually um, invested in China. A lot of times, these people investors.
brothers used to be just the relatives of a known Chinese mainlander, and then they established the linkages and brought them in. So, um, so there is not a, a scenario where, um, if let's say if you are smaller than thirty uh, million US dollars, then I'm not going to look at you, and you don't. I, I do not want you to come in. There's not that kind of a scenario. So let's um, fast forward a little bit to the idea of domestic innovation, which has been the general push from the mid two thousands to the present. So first off, would you want to talk a little bit about the disappointment or the relative disappointment that some people had towards uh, this initial phase of FDI attraction and why the shift? Towards uh, indigenous innovation, the shift came from um, both a top-down form and a bottom-up form. So, so in terms of top-down, it was during that time because we have uh, attracted foreign direct investment at whatever costing a lot of localities, are bringing a lot of a lot of them. Uh, these um, local so a lot of manufacturing industries started to dominate be dominated by the foreign um, enterprises, and not just that they're just using China as a sort of a cheap manufacturing base and then the 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 goods are then exported outside and this uh, this scenario caused concern both among the policymakers and among the um, some of the um, scholars so for example and um, the minister of science and technology on um, I believe um, under the help of some um, top level scholars uh, drafted um, a report, a very long report about the importance to actually have uh, develop an indigenous innovation um, program for China, so that China is not overly dependent on foreign technology, and they they emphasize such importance and and why it is important, not just for the sake of economic nationalism, but for the sake of the fact that if you do not control the core technology, if you do not control the core product concept, you are forever just going to uh, make the peripheral components because by no matter how good you make peripheral components, you, there's not going to be a direct jump to that unless to uh, making the core components unless you really push for that. So anyway, so these reports also um, was brought to the um, to the attention of the leaders such as Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. That's when they started emphasize indigenous innovation. But more um, also at the local level, there is some voice of not in terms of indigenous innovation, but in terms of uh, in the uh, form of industrial upgrading already started going on in the later part of 1990s when there uh, uh, when their localities have rising costs of labor and uh, input of uh, materials, that there's too much uh, rise in the cost that they feel like there's a, a lot of pressure, um, that they almost f- feel there's a pressure for them to be, the market pressure would wanted them to push them for upgrading as well. So let's take a bit of a sidestep before we come back to this question of domestic innovation and um, talk a little bit about what drives local bureaucracies. So one of the two things you um, uh, you highlight is the cadre evaluation system, writing that, quote, unlike Western democracies, the ruling political elites in China are motivated by accountability from above rather than below. Uh, and you have this great document um, which shows the actual equation that uh, scores various um, bureaucrats for um, 
for promotion. So uh, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit more about uh, promotion incentives within the cadre evaluation system and how that ends up playing out from a policy perspective. Yeah, that that is actually a very interesting part. Uh, is that the, for um, because you know earlier on we we're talking about you know. Uh, central government trying to promote indigenous innovation and people's daily trying to say you know we really need to do that right but uh, the the reason um, the reason that is important is you also have to observe when it once it gets localities what local bureaucrats are doing and um yeah so they are um, local bureaucrats incentives that are driven by um, at least a very important part of it is this promotion system now i'm not saying that by looking at the country evaluation system by looking at the equation of how how to calculate the score then they are indeed going to promote in that way. No, it's not actually going to be that exactly in reality because if this is really the case, then uh, China would have, the bureaucracy would have a a hundred percent transparency, right? And there will be a hundred percent predictable. Everything can be calculated by an equation. So, that's not the case, but their incentives are driven by promotion system, which means that they they truly believe that um in general, that my performance or achievement or whatever uh, the kind of investment that I tracked are associated with this kind of um, the country evaluation system. Um, that basically is um, um, different from the Western democracies, which you have accountability from below from the uh, voters. Um, here we have the elites are having accountability from above. So it's really the lower level. Um, so it's the um, the upper level bureaucrats um, evaluate the low, lower level bureaucrats, and um, so the provincial leaders will evaluate the uh, um, city leaders, and the city leaders themselves will evaluate the department heads, and department heads will then evaluate the um, normal staff. So I guess there's the, the 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 obvious question that follows out of this is to what extent. Um, uh, you know, at, at the broad level, are these promotions uh, meritocratic? You know, on the one hand, you have a whole lot of um, uh, folks who uh, can trace their lineage back to the long march who are in very senior levels, which doesn't necessarily make one think that uh, uh, meritocracy and how good your score is on water and air quality is really uh, the thing that gets you up the food chain. Um, but 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 what was your what was your sense at the um, uh, you know meeting with these folks uh, t- to what extent they did and and when they varied from this uh, this strict evaluation system? So that depends on um, so the whatever the um, typical form like there is a cadre evaluation like example that is appendix of chapter four of my book and um and what, typically what you see as an example are actually how provincial government evaluate the top leaders um at a, of the city governments so that's why you see a lot of um, indicators ranging from economic development to air quality and unemployment rate because as a top city leader they have to consider all of them right um so some of them are harder targets some of them are softer targets um, i mean later getting on later on um there are things like uh, you know how satisfied um population is with your progress um on science yeah, and technology that that, that is that is yeah whatever that means but that doesn't actually is not a hard uh, manage uh, hard measurement uh, some of them are veto uh, targets um, for some reason, I didn't see them occurring in just that 
special case, which is Jiangsu. But but um, for some reason, I some it occurs more frequently in um, inland in inland China provinces. For example, Henan province would have. Um, it used to be when this China still have one child policy, like the population increase, right? Or uh, would have uh, social stability, which means there's no major up, um, protest or um, uh, inst- um, instability events happening. So sometimes these um, these um, things could be a veto. Um, targets, which means that if that happens, then that cancels out all your achievements. So you have to, I mean, it's very complicated. Each individual bureaucrat have to evaluate, but not all bureaucrat have to deal with all these things, because if I only work for the commerce department, then I only have um, a commerce department's evaluation that emphasize only sure. one set of things instead of the environmental quality, for example. Yeah. So the other thing you write about what drives local bureaucrats is this idea of fragmentation. And as centralized as many um, Western authors uh, write about the Chinese economy, it really isn't, you know, the 90s and 2000s, China wasn't nearly as centrally directed as the as Korea and Japan in the uh, in their kind of like centrally directed development heydays of the 50s, 60s and 70s. Instead, you put forward this idea of fragmented authoritarianism and a policy enforcement market. Uh, can you elaborate on those ideas? Yeah, that's um, that's two wonderful concepts. The fragmented authoritarianism was developed earlier by um, uh, Mike Oxenberg and Ken Lieberthal, and then um, policy enforcement market. I, I draw on Andy Murtha's um, concept. But so all these are scholarly concepts. But what they are trying to capture China is that um, for China, compared to like Korea, or Japan, they are much more decentralized. So when we talk about Korea and Japan, and actually there's some uh, some valid uh, observation here is that uh, when we talk about these countries, it makes sense to say, for example, in Korea, what the Economic Planning Board says and what's the result of the industrial um, outcome. And then... Um, what in Japan, what what the media says, the ministry um, says, and then what is the um, outcome of Japan's um, industrial growth or industrial performance. But in China, it's quite complicated because the overall outcome we often observe, such as like GDP or um, uh, technology progress, a lot of times are embedded in local context and uh, sub-national governments are much more important and and also there's much more fragmented um, fragmentation meaning that the bureaucracy are not acting as coherent as the other East Asian countries that there are a lot of more a lot more um, bureaucratic competition um, and different sure. pursuing a different agenda across different um, departments yeah it sounds like way more fun to be a provincial mayor in China than in in Japan yeah. That's true. That's true. Not you don't have to be a provincial governor. You don't even have to be a Chinese city mayor, even if you're just a county head. So there is a count. The head of the county told me that I govern like um, more than a, a million people, and if I put in outside of context of China, I, I'm actually a king or something like that. So it's not. <laughs> You know, it's so. So it's in China. the The context is quite different because within his country, uh, assuming it's a him, uh, it within his country, it's it's actually there. There can be like thousands of you know firms or or at least hundreds of firms there. So, did you run into any uh, female bureaucrats in this in this research? Oh yeah, yeah. So um, 
so bureaucrats, um, if they're female, I find they're typically more considerating that they do not ask me to drink as much alcohol. And while they were there, it's also good. It's also good that it's also good because with with female bureaucrats, because she 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 or they do not want to drink that much of a alcohol, that kind of toned down the entire alcohol culture around the table. Well, well, thank you all the um uh, all the uh, female bureaucrats out there for saving uh, saving Ling's liver. Um, uh, you uh, <laughs> you mentioned that uh, bureaucracies compete for. Um, survival, control of key policies, mm-hmm. and the ability to build patron-client relationships with uh, different parts of the government and uh, companies. So, uh, talk about talk a little bit about this interbureaucracy competition and um, what's going on uh, with these dynamics. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, that's that's important. To, that's very important when we understand bureaucracy, um, the incentive bu- bureaucrats. Basically, they compete because for, first they need to survive means that um, if they're tr- deemed to be redundant, then the next, you know, ne- not next day, but maybe next year, they can be merged into another bureaucracy or they can be um, basically um abolished and they do not want that to happen right they want wanted to prove and this we all understand not just chinese bureaucracy i i actually see that in part of u.s bureaucracy as well but anyway so that is like you have to show that um you have value of existence and you're doing something and something you're doing is important and it's related to the control of key policies because by controlling these key policies, they give them the opportunity to build their political achievement, to build the the points and achievement they'd want to earn under the country evaluation system. And also with the control of policies that that comes with economic resources. For example, if you control the policy of evaluating which um, enterprise is, um, can can be deemed as high-tech enterprise, then you gain the control of of granting um, because that is, is like authorizing this um, bureaucrats, uh, authorizing this firm, a uh, high-tech firm status so that the firm can actually um, be exempt or be um, exempt from tax pay- uh, payment or um, at least have substantial tax reduction. So that is um, that is key for a lot of bureaucrats to um, to compete, to to um, to grab for these um, policies, or sometimes I call it resource-bearing policies. And also, once you grab these resource-bearing policies, you can use that to consolidate, build or consolidate your, your patron-client relationship with, with, with the business. So um, in China, you know, these um, economic bureaucrats or technology bureaucrats, they typically have their own um, business clients that they work with for a long time. And that's when what the business go to to get, um, you know, resources or get approval. And what I'm talking about here is really not low stake, but fairly high stake. Because think about it, if a business, I mean, before 2008, um, domestic business pay 33% of corporate income tax and foreign business pay um, about uh, 15% of um for fifteen percent of corporate income tax, and but if you are uh you are you granted you're granted with the status of high tech a uh, new and high technology firms as uh, we're promoting uh, domestic upgrading, then you you will be like those foreign enterprises and pay fifteen percent. 
So these bureaucrats and the the ability they have to designate you as um, as high tech and something that's important for China's future um, technology development can potentially make or break the uh, the entire operation and the entire profitability and the point of the whole uh, investment in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 quite important, and that that's why these policies are quite important. Then that why bureaucrats really care about these policies. So you have this great quote from a Suzhou official in. 2010 saying, quote, why are we trying so hard to promote the interests of our own business clients? Forget about those big words like making our city a better place. We have to get concrete benefits for ourselves. That was the biggest reason and the real reason. What was going on in that context? And explain the uh, the thinking behind uh, behind that behind that comment, please. For Sudra officials uh, interviewed, it, it seems like they're fighting really hard for their local business clients, right? Um, well, the real reason is not exactly that that they think their business clients are everything. Um, it's also not because you know uh, they're trying to make the city a better place to live. Probably as a by- byproduct, it is. But uh, really, they wanted to um, have some concrete benefits for themselves. And exactly that's um, connect to what I just said before about bureaucratic incentives. Is that once they it, they actually fight for the interests of their own business clients, they actually were able to get concrete benefits. For example, kickbacks from the business clients. This A and B that if their business clients are uh, happy with them and keep staying in there, that's um, then they can um, make continued investment in the city. That will make the bureaucrats look good in terms of both in terms of their political achievement and performance, um, and in terms of how they they um, performed in their the, in the policies, the key policies they control. So that basically enabled them to win in the bureaucratic competition. That's that's actually the key reason. So I just spent two years at a master's program in China and China studies. And doing it, I watched a lot of ITE, but didn't necessarily gain too many hard skills. Had I only known that at the University of San Francisco's new master in applied economics, I could have learned something to actually make me super employable. You know, R, SQL, machine learning, all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in Silicon Valley and Zhongguanzun, not necessarily have you watched all of Wanlisong. So in this program, you can study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics and experimental design and machine learning. Plus, for all those non-U.S. students out there, this program is designated STEM, so you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa and keep working in the U.S. after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu slash Jordan. Can you talk a little bit about the dangers to domestic innovation that these big ticket, large scale, uh, multi-million dollar uh, FDI projects had for Suzhou companies? Um, okay, so the dangers at first were not, I mean, at first there were no dangers, they're only good things, because when they came in, those large firms, they also bring in their friends, right? They bring in their networks, and so let's see if the lead firm came in, or the... Um, um, ODM, OEM firms all came in, their, uh, their assembly firms come in too. So in that case, in the particular case I was thinking about, it was even assembling was not conducted by a Chinese firm. It was the peripheral components was conducted and, and, and made by the Chinese firms. So at first, it's all good in bringing a lot of investment and money into the city. Um, it was just much later on when China realized they need to 
the Chinese firms need to move up the value chain, then that becomes a, a bigger problem because um, how are they going to move up? Because when they move, those firms at the bottom, when they try to move up, they are actually um, competing with their upper stream customers because in these global value chains, the customers are upper stream um, firms. So they're competing with their own customers at upper stream, but not only with their upper stream customers. They're competing with entire global chain that are populated by all these uh, lead firms and OEM firms that um, they all know each other and that are one big club. And the Chinese firms themselves are not th- that big club. Um, so it's almost made them impossible to move up and because of the incapability of competing with those upper stream firms. So you have another quote from a bureaucrat saying, I constantly urge domestic firms to apply for patents to get approval for certain tax exemptions. I felt like I'm a policeman trying as hard as I can to catch these managers in order to force them to apply for patents. It's really for their own good. Ironically, I'm pretty sure that Ren Zhengfei did not need a bureaucrat to tell him to invest in his own R&D, but the incentives just really didn't seem to be there for the uh, Chinese Suzhou electronics manufacturers uh, or, or folks involved in the uh, in these supply chains to spend their own money researching uh, their own technology. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right on. And I can tell you, Ren Zhengfei doesn't need <laughs> need a bureau- Chinese bureaucrat to tell them to do that. And I can talk more a little more when we get to Shenzhen. But but yeah, because um, because the reason is that a um, that a lot of these Chinese firms they know that the they cannot move up and they they don't not have the incentive to move up because they're trapped at a um, lower part of the um, the value chain. So there is, uh, they lacked the um, forces both from the pull and the push side. So from one side of the story, you could say at the lower part of the value chain, there's market competition so fierce because there's the assets are all replaceable, can be easily replaced. So they can, if that's the case, they, they will give them the uh, incentives to actually move up, but not necessarily the case because in Suzhou, again, the story is they match firms in a way that's highly controlled by um, bureaucrats. The bureaucrats actually, um, so for example, um, the, one of the, um, I shouldn't mention the name, the bureaucrats actually dissembled the entire Entire um, laptop computer to know what are the components, and they in order then they just attract it according to the components of these computers, right? So they only allow certain firms to come in according to their own plan. That means even the firms are struggling at the bottom that are having a low um, profits. At least they're um, they're guaranteed more or less that um, they're still staying at the bottom of the chain without much market incentive to push them to to upgrade. But also the government on the government side, they're also uh, not pushing them. Uh, they're pushing them, but not pushing them in the right way. They're pushing them to actually uh, to apply for patents. You should apply as uh, many um, patents as possible. Um, you should um, actually create this patent number so that um, you know our, um, for example, Bureau of Science and Technology are going to look good. But um, but th- they didn't understand that because the from the from the bottom market side there is not a pressure, and from the top side because of the top um, and medium part of the global value chains are all um, dominated by the same club, uh, multinational corporation firms, or their friends. They also do not have the incentive or um, 
the in their mentality to see that there's a possibility of attractiveness for um, themselves for these firms to move up the value chain. So they, there's a different parts of the story that's almost that's further trapped them at um, more at the bottom of the value chain. Uh, you you had this idea of the um, the gap just being uh, the technology gap just being too large and it being kind of inconceivable um, for the domestic firms to kind of reach the 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 place that the multinationals were at. So them just kind of believing, you know, it was like Feijin, it was just it was just not even worth it to to start kind of climbing yeah. up that um, up yeah. that ladder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, don't get me wrong. At first, so there are stories where the multinational corporations, which are uh, at a higher level of value chain, trying to actually use the Chinese firm, for example, to make the um, the glass substrate, the glass surface for their laptop computer, for example, because the laptop for laptop computer, the glass is highly important. That's not a normal glass. It's the most high tech glass, and most of firms cannot produce, right? So they use the Chinese firm at first to to manufacture that glass for the computer screen. But they didn't work out. The reason is because that they basically, they bring in the firms that are too high uh, on the value chain, whereas they're local, in the local level, there's not a capacity to build up yet. So uh, the gap, the technology gap, or the gap that um, the multinational corporation required to fail is too hard to be failed. So you also had this little piece on how bad government programs just didn't die. Uh, another quote I'm going to read out. So after we fight with bu- other bureaucrats and I finally get these resources from the government, how could we simply point out that these firms aren't making a lot of technological progress? Saying that would mean hurting ourselves as the government will refrain from giving us more money next time. We cannot complain about our difficulties mm-hmm. in this way. Top city leaders will yeah. not understand the real problem and will take it as a sign of weakness. Care to elaborate on these dynamics? Yeah, yeah. So so it's related. Just the end the story where um, there's a large um, technology gap and the multinational corporation initially tried to use uh, Chinese firms from the bottom and it didn't work, right? So then they went back to using their friends, which are all um, uh, other foreign firms um, to do the production. So these firms, these Chinese firms, they are having a hard time upgrading. And it's good that bureaucrats are trying to get their get them the funding or you know science and technology coalition that um the coalition that I mentioned for the government. They are trying to um say you know if you please apply for patents, please upgrade. We give you the pockets of government funding, which is from the the city level um, budgetary revenue, and it's under the science and technology spending. But after they give give them this pockets of funding under whatever names or awards, they do not have a program to actually evaluate the results as closely. Um, part of the thing is that you evaluate your results. If you say that those firms that you award the money to are not doing the good thing in terms of the R&D, right, then you are not going to get this budget anymore. Um, in these cities, the science and technology system bureaucrats are already very weak. If they say that uh, we're not doing a good job, they're going to be even weaker compared to, let's see, uh, bureaucrats that are under the international commerce or, uh, or associated with uh, multinational corporations. So that's not what they're going to say. And that then also uh, further weakens the incentives for firms to make progress because you you get the grant for R and D you get the grant for whatever science and technology thing but you're not really doing what what you're supposed to do so that's kind of like a chicken and egg problems. Let's turn now to Shenzhen. 
So what was going on uh, here and how did they, uh, what were the what were the factors that allowed this city to catch magic in a bottle? Well, um, Shenzhen, I do not want to have an overly rosy picture of Shenzhen. Of course, Shenzhen has a lot of horror stories happen too. Like with Shenzhen Foxconn, for example, with part of the environmental issue, part of the like, uh, housing, real estate bubbles. But for, for all these problems, what, what happened with Shenzhen is eventually you see that it's, I mean, just we have to look at the fact that uh, it is in this um, particular city or region that region that um, you you saw firms starting from very low end of the value chain and starting very very small pocket of money very small startup and then gradually grow to be um, more competitive and uh, okay everyone knows Huawei now but um, and back then when I was doing research most people don't know Huawei majority of people almost absolutely do not know Huawei from here in the United States but even back in China mm-hmm. if it's Chinese population uh, most people a lot of people don't know either Huawei or ZTE that's um, but but I sense that there's something fundamentally different in Shenzhen and that is, I mean, there's not actually a secret. It just basically they did the things they, they follow the things that it's naturally supposed to do is that they start with a, at the cheaper end, right? And and the thing is that important is they build the horizontal linkages among firms. They start um they started being very small and at low end of value chain, and there is a market pressure for them to upgrade. And also the governments realize that the the um, danger of being trapped at the lower end of the value chain. So they are pushing firms to upgrade. But unlike in Suzhou, they're they're um upper or medium levels of the value chain are not occupied. It's there are a lot of space for them. It's they, so when they evaluate, for example, when when Zhen Fei was evaluating his very small at that time he only have twenty one thousand RAB. So how are you gonna how are you gonna do anything with twenty one thousand Yuan in China nowadays, right? So anyway, so he started with mm-hmm. that much money at a small workshop. But of course he he was driven um, out of profits. Um, he his profits become very low. At first, the profits was high. He he um, buy the switches, telecommunication switches from Hong Kong, and then resell them in mainland. That kind of that price difference allow him to win um, profits. But a lot of people can do that. If you just buy in something and sell into the mainland, a lot of people can do that. That's why it's your asset is very likely to replace. That was why um is. Profits like dropped significantly, and he evaluated the situation, thinking this is not going to he cannot survive very long unless he um, invests. So that he started to invest like sixty percent of the um, his sales value in R and D, and started to do his own R and D, and and basically he himself started indigenous innovation without even the central government in the two thousand six to call on him to do that. Right, that was much earlier on, and when he made this um, uh, decision or evaluation um, that he needs to do that. He also think it's very attractive for him to do that because there's a lot of space at the higher level that other people are not doing. And he think it's also profitable, right? Profitable to do that. Uh, that's when um, he um, started to move up. But that's that just you know, one example, there are m- many firms that has failed the same kind of, me- uh, have same kind of mentality, uh, same kind of um, pressure. 
Uh, a few comments I want to I want to highlight from this chapter. You write that uh, you know Shenzhen and Guangdong were often denounced as uh, having sweatshop factories with very Diduan, a very low level production, especially clear, mm-hmm. uh, compared to the likes of Suzhou, which had a much higher starting point by only attracting these like Gaoduan MNCs. But at the same time, it was actually the fact that they started so low on the value chain, um, which was uh, something that was able to help them kind of slowly. Um, uh, crawl up. The other thing which I thought was fascinating was just this mentality difference that you uh, were able to tease out in some of your survey research uh, with only 30% of Jiangsu uh, managers versus 60% of those in a Guangdong believing it's being believing it's even worth it to invest in R&D in the first place, um, which is a fascinating little manifestation of how um, uh, these kind of wrinkles in, in circumstance of, of development from the 90s uh, end up end up playing out and really influencing the decisions that firms uh, end up making. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, six, I mean, it's probably, I, I don't remember the exact, it's roughly 30% in Jiangsu and 60% of um, in Guangzhou because um, I conducted the survey in 2011. And it's like, you can just judge from what entrepreneurs are doing and what they're saying, right? Uh, so in Jiangsu, there is like a very widespread saying that I found is if you do not innovate, you are waiting to perish. If you do innovate, innovate, you're actively seeking to perish, right? So either way, you're going to perish. So why, I just, up, right? why don't I just wait to perish instead of active? Like, if I can wait to perish, basically, they, they use the word die, but die means perish. I just translate it in this. Way. So if I wait to, be, to perish, maybe I will perish like 10 years later, for example. If I actually seek to perish, let's say I innovate and actually seek to perish, I will perish like tomorrow, right? Or perish next month. Why should I do that? <laughs> That's the saying, right? That's the saying. Whereas in Guangdong, the firms are like this. Okay. Oh, you know what? It makes a lot more money to make motherboard rather of the computer rather than to make the mouse of computer. Let's just do it and let's do it tomorrow and see what it what it you know what it will result or something. It's like that. And I was like, you know, <laughs> you guys are just not really afraid of them. No, that if we we failed, we can just venture venture into something else. I mean, it's you know, it's kind of very different in environment. They're just having having they're like more open to what we, they want to try. So before we talk about the present and future, let's go. Uh, let's go way back. So you, in uh, your your final or second to last chapter, I get talk about how these differences in twenty first century economic policy perhaps have their root in the Qing Dynasty. Uh, writing that. Uh, so, so what were the differences between what were the differences um, back in the late Qing and Republican era uh, of uh, Jiangsu Province versus uh, Guangdong? Well, yes. So um, when I thought about these regional differences, I started to ask myself why they were so different in the first place. For example, why these um, in Jiangsu areas and part of the, part of uh, the thing is in, in Shandong as well. Um, I didn't talk too much about Shandong, but it's exactly the same thing. That it seems like there's much more need to control and more um, favor of a top-down kind of development model. And then I started to think why these these regions are so different even before this period, even even uh, what is the historical roots of those? And I found that because in the Jiangsu region in general, officials typically like to leap forward, likely to, to show their political achievements and um, kind of politically being politically passionate and pursue that 
political passion in the form of, for example, how many how many uh, in the in the exam for in the exam period how many how how many Jing Shi that Jiangsu pr- uh, produced how many Zhuang um, uh, Yuan that Jiangsu produced. It's very impressive because they wanted to be um, be politically loyal, and they also wanted to. Um, supersede in their political achievement. And this this goes down to even in the um, later on, briefly before the reform era in the Mao era, that they actually, you know, you would think that in the great leap forward itself, Jiangsu would not be, I mean, Jiangsu doesn't look like a, a, a region that would produce like these um, billions of whatever, how many, how many tons of the steel, right? But they're actually among one of the few provinces that were able to do that um, together with those northeast regions, you know, more heavy industry regions. And even after the uh, Great Leap Forward, they're talking about the small Great Leap Forward, like a new great, not a small, but a new Great Leap Forward that that was uh, like briefly under Hua Guofeng, but then later Hua Guofeng didn't uh, come to the, come to power in Deng Xiaoping rise, but but you can see the mentality. It's always like that. They they want to supersede in doing things. They want to have their political achievement established, but they want to do establish like shortly. They um uh, they they don't want to. They do not seem to have much patience. Uh, and Guangdong, Beijing's uh, Beijing's running dogs, perhaps too much. Um. It could be. It could be. I, I wouldn't say that exactly they um, follow whatever Beijing say, uh, because I, I also have good evidence that here and there they didn't follow exactly. Um, for example, in earlier um, you know, foreign direct investment attraction period, you're supposed to just bring in joint ventures. But in Jiangsu, Jiangsu's um, period, they actually, in Jiangsu region, they actually brought in, um, how do I say that? Um, they, they actually brought in a lot more multinational national corporations like wholly owned not joint venture wholly foreign wholly foreign owned firms more than um they did they typically are uh, because they the local government actually at that time don't have match funds to do the joint venture and that's that's later um that's later also trickled down to the problem of not lacking the horizontal linkages or lacking down the app down uh, lower linkages with local domestic local firms and narrowing their development coalition. But in, in Guangdong, it's the picture are quite different because they're just much more practical that they, they focus on practical economic development um, and um, much, much earlier on that there's not the same level of political mobilization in, uh, in the Guangdong uh, era that goes way back to, you know, Guangdong's history and things like that. But that's like a, like a century's history that people have to talk. So there's a lot of things in that. Yeah. So let's, let's contrast a little bit with, um, with, with Guangdong and how they seem to care less about the directives for Beijing and focus more on, uh, or, or the bureaucrats at least focus much more on the practicality of economic developments at the at the expense of uh, whatever was politically correct over the past, I guess, one hundred fifty plus years. Yeah. So um, they, um, for example, they um, um, there are um, various episodes um, in the book itself that talked about it, but um, um, I'm, I'm just that region just have less of a 
um, interest earlier on, even to um, for for people to become bureaucrats, that they, they don't they're not like that interest to say, oh, um, I'm it, it's my dream to be become a politician or bureaucrat. So that's less of a, the region's uh, culture, and the bureaucrats are like more um, sometimes they have very vague line with the business, and then more merged with business. Um, so um, during the Mao era, there's various political campaigns, of course. Um, but um, they are not very <laughs> into it. Like they're they're more care about their daily life. Um, there is some various depic- depictions by other leading scholars, as Vogel's book, for example, that 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 says that uh, document the entire Guangdong, uh, Guangdong, especially Guangzhou region and a region border around Guangzhou, because well, at that time Shenzhen was not in existence. Any like Shenzhen is a small fishing village, so so that's why it's very hard to find it relative and documentary that really about Shenzhen, but in the in the Guangdong region, it's like they're not that into the those political campaigns. And this is, of course, not to even mention that uh, in the very early reform period that um, they uh, basically protected uh, the, those small private enterprises. Some of them are under, um, under registered sort of under collect, connective enterprises uh, as like wearing red hats. Some of them are kind of uh, under the, this is interesting, some of them are even under the hat of a foreign uh, FIE, foreign investment enterprise in China, because they seek a little bit of uh, investment overseas, and um, that will give them a status. Um, but, in that, but in reality, they're actually domestic uh, enterprises um, that just uh, just bring in the um, a little bit of investment from um, overseas, but that will change their status and allow them to exist and prosper. What are the differences and similarities in the policies uh, you've focused on researching in the Hu era versus what we're seeing nowadays with uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Made in China 2025? Oh, that's a terrific question. And that really gets to the core of the current status of innovation. Um, the Made in China 2025 actually was out in the earlier period of the Xi regime. So in, it, when they first came out, there are actually some connection, with more connection with the whole um Era policy, um, and uh, at first I thought the Made in China 2025 itself um, is actually a welcome move because it goes um, beyond the only emphasize indigenous innovation, essentially saying we have to have our core technology of how to make chips or how to make um, airplanes um, on our own, right? To, from that end to a more um, emphasize on advanced manufacturing in general, which are China's more general, broader manufacturing capacity. Um, the, um, the, but the, I have to point out, though, is that it is something that China uses to brand the current upgrading um, uh, initiative. But it's not like everything China is are doing currently in terms of domestic industrial upgrading are go strictly just adhering to the Made in China 20, uh, uh, 2025. The same thing, just like a lot of China's outward investment are branded under the Belt and Road Initiative, but that's not exactly uh like every piece of thing is really doing what it what it's supposed to do. So um, I think in the Xi era, um, overall, um, there's more of a top-down uh, 
initiative building. Uh, there's more of a, a top-down um, recentralization process involved. For example, they started to recheck the status of those high-tech firms to see if they're really high-tech firms and if they really mm-hmm. can do their job, if they're really actually eligible for the tax break that they're, that they sh- that they're ha- enjoying, right? Um I don't know how to interpret this. On the one hand, you could say, well, yeah, so that means like previously those bureaucrats who do not want to evaluate the bad outcomes and those bureaucrats who gave the uh, the firm large, large pockets money and or gave them tax exemption randomly and, and now we'll, we'll, we can evaluate with these, whether these firms are indeed like really like really the high tech firms but on the other hand it also means that there is less the, there is less authorization of the local initiatives um, the locals are losing their authorities to take their initiatives um, and i do not see this as being a good for future or china's future industrial capacity because in, in the past the story has always the you, you when you control these regions right the region that actually succeed are the region that gradually move from bottom to up it's not the region that at the very beginning you have a very top-down sort of um, industrial policy just pouring down there and then immediately you will see the results i don't think so so on the one hand, you know, you see this push for centralization, but I think as um, your book and as this podcast has attested to, there's still, uh, you know, it's still a big challenge for um, Beijing to make sure that uh, everyone's uh, lining up with their proposals. And, you know, China is uh, is an enormous place and centralization, especially for localized economic policy may not end up the may not end up being the best solution for um, for these various regions trying to develop and uh, rise up the value chains in their own particular ways. So yeah, so I I would say that this is where that we can draw lessons from draw lessons from China and the broader lesson is just you have to evaluate which development stages you are and the. The economic policies implemented. If I mean, every country has their own economic policies, and um, the e- economic policy implemented have to be compatible with their, your own development stage. And uh, that you know, we are currently in a stage. A lot of developing countries are also too in a stage that are much more um, integrated in this global. Uh, production, global uh, value chain, um, and their production process also uh, much more fragmented. And if that is the case, then um, it's less likely that uh, just continues um, top-down, this kind of very traditional uh, top-down industrial upgrading uh, process or program would would likely to succeed. Um, you have to pay attention to local button-up initiatives, and um, that is something that's very hard to maintain uh, nowadays at the local level, and that kind of worries me um, some too, um, because because lo- local bureaucrats some, somehow have this mentality nowadays are like, I would rather not do things uh, than being wrong. 
So they're not taking any initiatives anymore at all. That, just because they're worried about uh, about the potential consequences. Yeah, they, yeah. The same thing as you know, in two thousand fourteen, I actually returned to China to do a follow up interview in order to complete the book manuscript, and it's very hard to find bureaucrats there who wanted to continue to talk to me anymore. Those bureaucrats who went to went a banquet with me or um, talked to me in their own office or in the seminar room. Uh, they they are much more cautious, so they're more comfortable to say you you just look up our government website and here is the pamphlet you can read from. But they do not actually accept interviews. Mm. Yeah, so so that is I'm just saying that if I mean I'm not saying that can, can happen mm. everywhere. I mean in some of the bigger cities such as Suzhou and Shenzhen or um, um, or some somewhere else maybe. Um, they're more sensitive, uh, especially that when I asked that for be interviewed. Well, I I was very dumbheaded too that I in ask the person to for interview. Whereas later on, I find this person's direct head, the head of like only one level above her, that uh, her head, um, the, her boss basically was just arrested for the anti-corruption campaign. So that's why they're being very um, cautious. So I, I guess I asked the wrong person also at the wrong time. <laughs> um, so it seems like this sort of uh, provincial level research is, is, has been getting harder and harder to do over the past uh, few years. Any, any advice to other uh, young researchers out there who want to focus on this more, uh, this more local type of work and what you would, uh, what, what you would advise them to do? Well, um, I think that I think still um, in the end of the day, you still have to go to you cannot only talk to the Beijing officials. And nowadays you cannot talk to say I talk to the minister of this. It's not possible. Right. So you cannot actually it's not even possible to say I only talk to the the political elites at the center level. You have to go um, deeper into province or city and to carry out your research and to know the uh, real story that's i mean that's just you have to do it that and when uh, when it comes to advice i think it's um just really depend on which region regions you're looking at and uh, um and just be uh, sensitive to what particular characteristic of the region is and how they fit into the uh, national picture and but i think the bigger advice is really you need to go there to do the research um nowadays a lot of um, other researchers they don't actually go to the localities and don't go to these cities to do field work anymore that's the thing um part of part of this is because of a much much harsher research environment, right? But part of it is um, because of availability of a huge big data. Like I, I use some big data in my book as well. But that that the use of big data thing cannot replace the on-site firsthand um, uh, material, firsthand uh, story. Um, well, if it's sure. too hard to interview bureaucrats, try to interview some <laughs> business. Usually it's not that hard. Or um, go like a level down maybe to the county level will, will be um, slightly better. That's that's just my um, personal advice. But I would certainly hope more researchers to do more updated work nowadays um, because it's much, given that it's actually much harder to re- do research, these kind of um, 
practice would be actually more precious for us. It sounds like you had a blast. It sounds like you had so much fun. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. All right, uh, Ling, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Oh, thanks very much. And thanks again for inviting me and um, I really enjoy our chat. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast. Now it's ninth year. Until next week. They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.